You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. With me today is Annika Brower, sustainability specialist at 91 in London. And Annika has recently attended the spring meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. First point, I suppose, Annika, is why? Why were you there? Why were you there? And why was 91 represented? So the IMF World Bank spring meetings are effectively an annual gathering of the you know world central bankers ministers of finance and development parliamentarians private sector and then also critically obviously civil society organizations and academics and they all kind of come together around key issues of global concern that is everything from world economic outlook to poverty eradication to climate and aid effectiveness. 91 participated as a private investor. So we very much, you know, wore our kind of private sector hat, but quite critically, a private investor with emerging market experience and exposure. And that's a key part of our advocacy agenda is bringing that experience to forums like the World Bank Spring Meetings and others to ensure that that experience is is represented at the table. Given the agenda that the meetings cover, you must have had quite a busy time. And I'm just looking at your key takeaways. And I just want to quote from the first one. First key takeaway concerned multilateral development bank and development finance institute reform. And then you go on to say the following. And this is where I think you might have been slightly dissatisfied with the whole affair because it says public finance is not fit for purpose. Development objectives are not being achieved. We are behind on climate. SDG and development targets. And you go on uh, with a few more points as well. Were you genuinely frustrated or dissatisfied with what you heard? You know, Lindsay, I don't think I was dissatisfied with what I heard at spring meetings. I think that the satisfaction point comes from years, quite frankly, of public spending and use of public finance that does not catalyze private finance. So, If you think about the broader development agenda, pick any theme and the way that that public capital has flowed into trying to kind of alleviate some of the burdens that these countries, communities, people face has not resulted in more private finance flowing into those sectors, those regions and solving for those problems. And, you know, we know by now that If we are going to get behind a solution and do it at scale, private sector needs to be included. Private sector needs to be incentivized. And so the reason why I say public finance is not fit for purpose is because if we are going to solve for some of these, you know, quite systemic issues, the SDGs, climate change, we need to be thinking about how different types of capital can work together. That's concessional capital, that's philanthropic capital, that's the way that government spends its money. How can we spend thinking about private capital mobilization effectively? And I think that's where the frustration stems from. I think on the plus side, I actually walked away thinking, wow, you know, now is the time for change. The incoming World Bank president, AJ Bunga, who is taking over David Mulpass's seat, he comes from the private sector. You know, he's ex-MasterCard CEO. He knows how business works. He knows how to make and invest in something for, for scale. And 
I think this whole reform agenda around MDBs and multilateral development banks and development finance institutions has been brewing for some time. Um, We have seen, you know, Kristalina Georgieva, head of the IMF, she's been calling for reform for years. And this incoming World Bank president has a major agenda to deal with, but I think he seems to be the right person for the job. So we're seeing change and now is the time and you know, everywhere we were, this MDB DFI reform conversation was taking place. So so that's definitely a positive takeaway. Very good. So just to summarise, public finance is there, but it's not being utilised in order to incentivise or, as you say, catalyse private finance to come and join the party. And what you said just at the end there sort of echoes the headline from that London School of Economics piece of work that you sent me, which more or less says humankind is at the crossroads now. And uh, I suppose the new World Bank president um, can, using that word again, catalyse the change that humankind kind needs to go through in order to take the correct path. Exactly. I think, you know, I I go back to, you know, the essence of why we were there. The spring meetings is it's a time for multi-stakeholder solutioning, not admiring the problem, which we have done very well, I think, for many decades. You know, we've admired the problem in multi, many different reports, multiple different layers from every view and every perspective. But It's the solutioning that really requires the people at the forefront of allocating capital, be that public or private, to be around that table. So, you know, that is why we were there and we very much wanted to support that reform agenda and and really look into how can $1 of public money mobilise up to $10 of private capital. Because if we start seeing ratios like that, mobilization ratios, then we know that we're all actually singing from the same hymn sheet. What does the private sector need in order to become part of this whole movement? I mean, is it public sector spending on infrastructure? Is it uh, public sector reassurance that the countries that are being helped potentially by private investment, if that country is stable, is the money safe? Are those the sort of things that will help the matter? Yeah, I think so. All of those things, yes. And I think that kind of leads me on to the second big takeaway or rather big theme of the week, which was the private capital mobilization agenda. Effectively, public sector saying to private sector, what do you need from us? If we're going to reform, if we're going to change the way we spend our dollar, what do you need for us to do with that dollar? In what form, with what conditionality for you to put your money in on top of that? So effectively, what you're looking at is, you know, everything from kind of blended finance type structures where you have risk mitigation capital, but also increased use of guarantee mechanisms, increased spend on the project pipeline. I think one of the, you know, one of the key things we constantly hear from private sector as to why they're not financing emerging markets, why they're not financing some of this, you know, harder to invest in infrastructure is because they will say, there are no projects, but there are very critical institutions that are set up that take projects that exist in these regions and make them bankable. And that's called project preparation facilities. So how can the World Bank or the GIF specifically, which is the World Bank's project preparation facility, how can it scale? How can it be more you know, in size, but also in types of projects that, that, that are coming to the fore and quite frankly, do so quickly? 
So as private sector, it kind of depends on where you're wanting to invest and what you're wanting to invest in. Not all regions are the same. The risks in those regions are not the same. The types of assets are obviously not the same. But what we want to see is an increased availability of instruments like guarantees, like you know, de-risking capital, like technical assistance. Your final takeaway, climate meets development meets return. What does that mean? So if you think about it to date, we very much separate the conversations or the objectives of climate change development. So kind of, you know, looking at like infrastructure development, energy access, job creation, and then return. Those are often three separate conversations. What we need to start doing is because private sector we know is going to fund the lion's share of this development agenda, private sector only going to do that if there is an incentive and that incentive is return. So if we can, instead of saying we need to invest in a world for change, we need to invest in climate solutions, we need to invest in emerging markets, we can say with a risk return ratio that is more appetizing for private sector, we need to scale these technologies, these elements of infrastructure, and in these key regions for us to achieve our targets. And changing that narrative means that you are thinking with your private sector hat on. We are, you know, private sector is not there to de-risk other types of capital or to invest in loss and damage, for instance. There's this whole big loss and damage in small island development states and lower income fragile countries. That is not an investment that typically creates a return. However, there are many types of solutions in many regions where there is a strong return, there is limited risk, and where there is risk, public capital can de-risk private sector. But also, those investments lead to jobs. They lead to reduced emissions. They lead to more people having energy access at a more affordable rate. Those are all positive development outcomes that come from the allocation of a private dollar. And I think, you know, the dialogue to date has really been almost the reverse of that. Invest for jobs, invest for climate, and then we can talk about return. And you've introduced uh, quite neatly the capitalism uh, theme. In other words, uh, a private investment does need to be incentivised by the fact that although they're doing good, which is a major part of why they might be looking at certain projects and, and certain schemes, they need to get something out of it for their stakeholders and their shareholders. And that uh, brings in neatly as well. How does all this affect 91? It affects us, you know, obviously in two ways. You can look at it positively and you can look at it negatively. But Really, you know, what it means for us is that we have a fiduciary responsibility, of course, to invest our clients' wealth in, you know, the most responsible way for long-term return. That's what we do. That's what we're set up to do. And that means looking at being very, very clear on what the risks are and what the opportunities are. Within that, that's our kind of baseline, you know, of what we set up to do. The second step there is that within our strategies, within our um, funds, there are certain funds and there are certain strategies that are effectively set up to invest for positive 
change. And that could be for people or for planet. And that could be, you know, anything from investing in climate solutions to investing in transition and emerging markets to investing in the critical infrastructure needed in emerging markets to give energy access or technology access to more people. So therein lies an amazing opportunity, given our track record, given, you know, the fact that we were born in emerging markets, we've invested in emerging markets for 30 years, we understand them, we understand these risks, and we can help others through proof points, you know, through trial and error, and through showcasing how you can invest for return, we can help reduce some of those perceived risks. Because I think that's the greatest issue that we face today. But equally, the greatest opportunity is what is a real risk and what is a perceived risk? And how can we as 91, with our you know, suite of effectively proof points, help navigate and reduce those so we can increase the flows and show others, asset owners specifically, that you can allocate into these regions and you can allocate into these sectors and you can do so and get meaningful long-term return. Very good. Right, where do we go from here? Where to now? Well, isn't that the age-old question? Mm. So I think where to now is is actually about those proof points. It's about saying, okay, what works? Because the critical thing is that this does work. It's just we don't speak about it loudly enough and it's not showcased broadly enough. So find the proof points and scale them. It's not about recreating them. It's not about lessons learned and we can replicate and try something new. We actually know what works. And if we can scale that, that's a very easy first step towards the right direction. Annika, thanks so much for your analysis. That was Annika Brower, Sustainability Specialist at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.